what I want to do this morning is I want to preface all this by basically saying Paul's going to continue this theme of what it means to be made right with God. And the reason why it's super important to understand why we're made right with God is because really at the core, at the center of all that we are, the way that we act, the way that we think, the way that we act, uh, uh, act with, towards other people, really at the end of the day has connections to how we are made right with God. In other words, give you an example of this. If we aren't resting in what God has done for us on the cross, if rather than trying to just find our comfort and our peace in what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross, we still feel as if we're not at peace, what will ultimately end up happening is that we will end up turning our hearts over to something else to complete us or to fulfill us. And really, it doesn't matter what it is. We all choose different means Uh, different drugs of choices to satisfy us, different idols of choice to pacify, to satisfy, to bring some sense of completion to us. And what ends up happening is we find ourselves never really complete. One of the clearest examples of this, I think, is, for example, some people look at their lives and think, I got a debt problem. In reality, you don't have a debt problem. You have a worship problem. Your worship problem is that rather than finding satisfaction in God, you actually think that satisfaction can be found by spending items, spending money on items that really don't ever satisfy you. I mean, aren't ever going to bring an eternal satisfaction. And so you end up and you're willing to make sacrifices to keep putting yourselves in debt, ultimately to find that ultimate thing that will satisfy, pacify, and bring about some level of happiness or completion. So again, it's really not so much a debt problem you have, although you do have a debt problem, you have a worship problem. Everything traces back to worship. Same thing with reconciliation. Whether or not you have issues or areas of irreconciliation in your life where you're not at completeness in certain relationships. Again, they're problematic, they're difficult, they're painful, but at the end of the day, oftentimes our un- our our inability to be forgiving or to be forgivers oftentimes is rooted in the fact that we fail to see that we've been forgiven much. We fail to see that we've been reconciled to a great God and the debt that we have been reconciled as a, through what God has done for us is actually far greater than what anybody has ever done to us. And some of us have gone through some pretty hardcore gnarly things and yet what God has done in terms of reconciling us to himself is even far greater than anything. So my point is this, is when we talk about this idea of what it means to be made right with God, the theological nomenclature for this is the big word we call justification, justified, how we are made right with God. Everything actually traces back into your practical life, from your practical life, into your understanding, adherence, embrace of, love for an acceptance of the reality of whether or not you're justified by grace, whether or not you have a right relationship with God for what, through what Jesus has done for you, or are you still trying on your own behalf to bring about some level of reconciliation between you and God. Everything traces back to this. It's very practical. So what I want to do is I'm going to pray. We're going to read in chapter 3 around verse 10 to about verse 14. It's just four small verses. But what I want you to know is that, you know, some of you might be like, does it feel like we've been moving really slow through chapter 3 especially? The answer is, yeah, we've been actually moving very slow through chapter 3. Exactly. It's it's what's been happening. The reason for that is chapter 3 of the book of Galatians is huge. It's massive. Um, There's so much stuff 
to be looked at and talked about. I mean, you should actually be thankful that we're not spending years in chapter 3. All right? So the reality is, is there's so much stuff here. I, I, I want to find a proper balance between uh, taking the time, the needed time that we need to really try to unpack some of these things and not just simply, you know, focusing on one word and spending an entire message on one word, you know, for the next six years. Uh, trying to find the right balance between that. But at the same time, so we are going to move a little bit at a slower pace. As soon as we get out of chapter three, we're going to kind of take a look at some larger chunks and kind of make, be making our way through that. But for this particular point right now, there's a lot of very important things that we need to understand that Paul's trying to convey uh, to really understand where he's getting at. We're going to move a little bit at uh, a slower pace to try to unpack some of these things. So with that being said, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to read uh, Galatians chapter 3 at about verse 10 to about verse uh, 14. So let's pray. Father, right now we just ask you that you would help us, give us strength as we look at your word, guide, lead, direct, give us eyes to see, ears to hear. God, we want to be able to know how to worship you properly, and we confess that even in our own selves, we don't worship you properly. We create our own God in our own image, rather than accepting the fact that we are created by God in his image. So we pray, God, that you would help us to uh, unpack these things rightly, properly, so that we can have a clear vision of you, so that our lives will reflect, reflect properly the way that you want us to live in accordance with you and in accordance with other people. Gospel is very practical. So help us right now, we pray. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. It says this in verse 10. For all who rely upon the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous will live by faith. The law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged upon a tree. And so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So this is a lot of stuff that Paul's talking about here. I'm going to try to unpack it for you guys because you might read it. You're like, what in the world did he say? Faith, curse, blessing, uh, under curse, Christ died for us, redeemed. What are all these big things? I'm going to try to unpack some of these things. So just hold tight. So what I want to do right now is I'm going to take a look at two specific things and hopefully try to put it under these two larger categories and we'll try to break it down for you. The first thing I really want to take a look at is to try to understand how the law creates a curse. So this is built upon the assumption that Paul already says all who are living under the law live under a curse. So what that means, I want to try to unpack what this means in two ways. The first thing I want to try to understand what cursing and blessings are. Really, these, these, this, is termin, this, is, <clears throat> this is terminology that has to do with covenant for the DTR, the defining relationship, right? You, you know, remember that, that day if you are married? You're like, remember the day you sat down and you defined the relationship? You're like, I really like you. That awkward conversation, you're like, I like you too. Uh, where should we, you know that weird conversation? You know, it's like, it's horrible. It's the worst conversation in the world. But after that, you're like all happy and everything's great and all that. But the reality is, that conversation in some way, shape, or form has to happen because you're basically expressing desire to be with each other and where your likes and dislikes lay. And so with that being said, God does the exact same thing with the people of Israel. 
But the way God does this, we need to understand the terminology that God uses. And the terminology that God uses is he creates a covenant with his people Israel by which he's going to now have a relationship with them. Okay? And all this basically takes place back in a time in the region of the Bible, in the book called the book of Deuteronomy. I want you guys to turn there real quickly. Deuteronomy uh, chapter 27. Deuteronomy chapter 27. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Uh, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 27, fifth book in your Bible. And so what ends up happening here is God basically calls the children of Israel. He says, I want you guys to be my special covenant people. God's like asking them out to be part in a relationship, a marital relationship. God says, will you be my bride? And Israel's like, yeah. And God's like, not so fast. Let's talk about the terminology of the relationship. And so what God is basically going to now define, he's going to say, in this relationship, as you walk with me in this relationship, that reality of walking in fellowship with me, let's call that a blessing. You hanging out with me, me hanging out with you, sitting on the couch, watching a movie together, snuggling with each other, it's good. It's a blessing, all right? It doesn't happen, but you get the idea. It's a blessing. It's good. In your presence is fullness of joy, what the psalmist says. Being with God in right relationship with God actually leads to the fullness of life is what God wants us to understand. The opposite of that, God would say, is not in right relationship with me. There's brokenness. There's a fracture. There's distrust, mistrust. Uh, there's friction. God says we'll call that a curse. That's, that's the language that God uses here. So when you read your Bible and you read the verses like talks about curse, you, you can't... Look at the Bible with 21st century terminology. For example, like the word curse. When we think of the word curse, what do we think of? We think of like Harry Potter. Like there's something's got a curse. Or some sort of magic curse cast upon somebody or a house that has a curse. And there's like, you know, ghosts in there. And there's like this weird curse. And we hear the Bible talk about curse. And we're like, oh, don't want that. That's horrible. In reality, that has nothing to do with the type of way in which we would think about curse. Curse and blessing are terminology, are words that God uses to define relational blessing that we have with him. So again, in short, when you're in right relationship with God, and you're walking in fellowship with God, blessing. When you're not in right relationship with God, when you're disobedient to God, when you're breaking the terms of this covenant, of this relationship, the laws of this covenant, curse. So God's not too far off in even making these as demands. Let me give you an example. Do you know that every single relationship we have has some level of laws in it? Every relationship. We're all citizens of America, I would imagine, most of us. And the reality is, is that there's laws to be citizens. There's laws to be citizens here in, in, in California. Certain things they don't want you to do, like texting while you're driving or talking on the phone. Uh, you know, there's laws. We don't want you to do that. And there's certain reasons why certain laws are established. For example, you know, only drive... 40 miles an hour on the turn. You know, they have that little yellow sign with the number 30 in the middle of it. It's because they know that if you go 60 miles an hour around that bend, you'll probably crash, you'll die, or maybe kill somebody else, or at worst, you know, maybe even live in a paralyzed body that cannot move or be immobilized to some degree, way, shape, or form. You will actually live in a place where you're not in right relationship with your environment around you, right relationship with other people around you the way it's intended to be. You'll bring about... A curse. The same is true even for relationships, marital relationships. Let me give you an example. If a guy pulls a gal aside and said they've been going out for a few months together, they sit down and they're like, look, let's talk about our relationship. 
Let's go a little bit deeper. Let's kind of peel back some of the layers and talk about where we want to go. The guy sits down. He says, look, I make a lot of money. You make a lot of money. We desire is once we get married, we've got the potential of making a lot of money. The reality is, is that I have a strong conviction that in our relationship, I don't want to live above our means. I want to be able to set some sort of a cap on our living expenditures and say, let's not live above our means. Let's set a cap upon this and any money that we make over that, that we, I want to give that away. I want to be diligent. I want to be careful. I want to be aggressive in ways in which we can give money away to the poor, help out the marginalized, take care of orphans, serve the needy, and that's what I want to do with my money. And if the gal's just like, yeah, you know, to be honest with you, I'm really big into investments. I want to buy lots of, you know, investment properties. I really believe in having a very, very large, very, very large closet for my shoe collection because shoes are very, very important to me. And I'll even add a room addition to my house just to have another room for my shoes because it's very important. And I will even, it's so important to me, I will actually even go into debt just to have these things. And it's like, ah, it's not good. Let's strike one. The next thing, he's just like, look, you know, one of these days when we get married, I would love to live for a period of time in some sort of an interracial uh, community in a large city. You know, we can hang out with a bunch of people that are of different races than us, a lot of culture going on right there, a great neighborhood to kind of get to know a lot of other people that are way different than us. And she's like, I don't trust anybody other than the same skin tone that I have. It's like, I'm not good. Uh, and the final thing is just like, you know, they, they, they begin to set all these like parameters and stipulations. Like the final one is just like, look, you know, one of these days, I would actually like to end the last few many years of my life out in the mission field, serving the poor, the marginalized. So to me, retirement's not an option. Retirement to me is going to another country and serving people, using all the money that we've accumulated in our businesses and our jobs and from all sorts of investments to give it away, to help the poor, to serve all those that are in need. And she's like, that's not my desire. I want to go live on an island and, you know, collect shells for an entire living. And at the end of my life, I just, I want to die with a pina colada in my hand. And I, I don't really want to care about serving the poor. Imagine at that moment, the guy gets down on one knee and he's like, will you marry me? It won't happen. Two radically different, you know, ways of defining their relationship. They're on two totally different planes. There's no congruency whatsoever in the relationship. They might, they might enjoy one another once in a while, but the reality is that's going to be a really bad marriage. It just will not work. They're two radically different laws or rules by which they relate with one another. In the same way, God says, look, to Israel, I want to be in relationship with you. Now, so jumping back to Deuteronomy chapter 27, I want to talk about this. In Deuteronomy 27, God's basically saying, look, Israel, you, you guys are my special people. You're my bride. You're my, you're my, you know, I'm in special covenant relationship with you. And so God goes on to say that I, I want to define the terms of our relationship. And the way he defines the terms is when the children of Israel come into the land of of Israel, or the children of Israel have come from the land of the wilderness into the land of Canaan, the land of Israel that's going to be their future inheritance. God says, I want a portion of the people of Israel to go up on this one mountain, another portion to go up on this other mountain. And what was going on is um, in the center of the valley, what was happening were the Levites or the priests and Moses were shouting out. It was just kind of this big spectacle of, of saying, do you agree? It's kind of a big way of saying, do you agree to the terms of the agreement that God is setting for you guys? And so here's a couple of examples of the terms of the agreement. The terms of, of agreement, in which they're in agreement on, terms of good relationship, God says you live by these things, you'll have blessing. Um, in the terms of disagreement, in other words, if you don't live according to these things, you'll have a curse. In the same way, if you end up getting married, 
And within the first six months of being married, your spouse cheats on you. Is that a cursing or a blessing? Obviously, total curse. I mean, there's distress now, major issues, uh, problems. There's this hatred that you're going to be struggling with, bitterness that will rise up. You will not be able to trust that person any, you know, for at least a long time. You will have to you know, deal with things. You'll go through counseling. You'll talk to other people to try to get some help and input and insight. And because what happened was the terms of the agreement that you made at the altar, until death do us part, I give myself, I pledge myself to you only. In six months you break that pledge, you've completely brought about a situation that is equivalent to the Old Testament understanding of a curse. I know a lot of people who live in a cursed marriage, not because somebody cast a spell on it, but because somebody sinned. Get the idea? So here's what God goes on to say. There's cursings and blessings. Here's a couple examples of them. Verse 15 says, Cursed is the man who makes carved or cast metal images. These are an abomination to the Lord. It's a thing made by the hands of a craftsman, sets it up in secret. Then all the people said, Amen. So God basically says, look, here's, here's one of my first stipulations. I, I don't like it when people make these little carved images, these little statues, and say, that's God. God's like, that's, that's actually an insult. That's like someone drawing this nasty, horrible cartoon picture of you and saying, this is exactly what you look like. Big nose, your eyebrows are like unibrow, you're like hairy back, and you know, hair come out of your ears. You're like, that's nothing like me. It might be like some elements of truth, but you're like, I'm deeply offended by that. God's like, I'm really offended when people carve these little idols and say, that's God. God says, so I don't want you to make carved idols. And everyone's like, amen. God goes on to say, um, for example, jump down about verse uh, 16. Take that one. Cursed is anyone who dishonors his mom and dad. And all the people said, amen. God's like, look, there's got to be some semblance of Right relationship, right behavior with other people around you. Let's just start with the home, God says. Let's just make sure that there's an honor system going on in the home. So when mom and dad get old and gray and they can't move around that much, show honor to them. Take care of them. Because you know what the reality is? Is they took good care of you when you were a kid and you were a punk and you were a teenager and adolescent. They put up with all the crap that you do. They still love you. But you know what? When they get old, just love them back. Just love them back. So the funny thing is a lot of us might be like, that's not a really good rule. But the reality is, some of you, if you think that's not a really good rule, it's because you're probably 20 years old and you haven't had kids yet. One of these days, you're going to get older, like in the 40s, and you're going to have kids, and your kids are going to become teenagers. You're going to be like, that's actually a really good law. Children honor your parents. Like, that, that's, a, that's a great one. And because you're going to get into that place one day, and you're going to be like, I, I want to be honored. I want my kids to love me and respect me. It's a good rule. Here's another one. Verse uh, 20, let's just jump down about verse 24. Cursed is anyone who strikes down his neighbor in, a, in secret. And all the people said amen. God's like, look, if you're walking down an alleyway and you whip out a bat and you whack a guy, don't do that. That's just not good. That's not good neighborly kindness. God's just, just like, you know, just refrain. Don't whack him. That's really good. And everyone's like, amen. This is really good. So you get the idea. God's basically just laying down some societal rules. And he says, these are the covenants. This, this, these are the rules I want to live by. I want you to live by. You guys in agreement with this? And they all said amen. When they said amen, it's basically their way of putting their stamp of approval on it. It's their way of basically standing at the altar and saying, I do. I do. In verse uh, 26, God says, all right, and this is actually a quote that Paul uses. So when we read in Galatians chapter 3 around verse 10, Paul's actually quoting this very same verse right here. He says, cursed is anyone who does not confirm the words of this law 
by doing them, and all the people said, amen. So God summarizes, it's like, look, the reality is, is everything I'm laying out for you is really good. Would you all agree? They're like, amen. God's like, and if, and if any of these get broken, uh, that's going to bring a curse upon you. In other words, it will bring about an estrangement, a breakdown in the relational fellowship that we'll have with one another, and everyone's like, amen. We're all in agreement with it. This is all great. Everything makes perfectly good sense. All this is right. Then God goes on, around verse, uh, chapter 28, to talk about the blessings. So God flips it around and says, these are the blessings. If you do these things, blessings will come upon your head. Here's an example. Verse 15. He says, if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, to be careful to do all the commandments and the statutes that I command you, then all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. Cursed will be your city. Cursed will be your field. Cursed will be your basket, your kneading bowl. Cursed will be the fruit of your womb. Cursed will be the fruit of your ground, the increase of your herds, your young flock. Cursed will be you when you come in. Cursed shall be you when you go out. And prior to that, around verse 5, God puts it into the positive form in the blessing. Here's what he says. Blessed shall your basket. In other words, if you live according to these things, blessed shall be your basket, your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. Did you ever thought about God actually caring about your kneading bowl? There's this kind of arcane prophecy in the book of Isaiah where God says there's going to come a day when he will actually bring blessing upon even your bowls in your kitchen and the very spoons which you use. And it's basically Isaiah's way of saying, you want to know how big, how deep, how wide, how great, how magnificent God's blessings will go? They'll go all the way down to even the silverware that you have in your drawer. That's how rich God's blessing is and how, God's rich, how rich God's blessing is intended to be. So he goes on, again, he flips it around in the negative in verse 15, and he says, look, if, but if you don't obey these things, your drawers will be cursed, your money bags will be cursed, your fruit in your fields, fruit of your womb will be cursed. Everything will have a curse upon it. There will be some sort of a breakdown in the relational element between me and you, and all of these other things will come as a result of that. Listen how he summarizes this in about verse 47. He says, because you did not serve the Lord your God, I'll jump forth uh, a couple verses forward on this. He says, verse 45, all these curses shall come upon you and pursue you and overtake you until you are destroyed because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes and his, that he commanded you. you sh- they shall be a sign and a wonder against you and your offspring forever because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart because of the abundance of all these things. And so God basically summarizes all of this by essentially saying the terms of relationship are good. And they all said, they're very good. We agree with all of them, God. They're really good terms which you've set for us. And God summarizes it by saying, cursed will you be, not only if you don't do these things, but if you don't do them with joyfulness. So why does God add that? Because the reality is, if you've ever been in a relationship, if you're married, if you've ever had a boyfriend or girlfriend, you know there's this little trick that you can actually do things without having your heart there. Ever been there? Ever done that? Dudes, guys, have you ever like bought flowers for your spouse, your girlfriend, and inside you're like, do not want to do this. This is, this is freakishly lame. But I'll do it because I know if I do this, she'll be smiling, I'll score some points, and I'll be looking good. 
And you do it, even though your heart is like fighting it, right? No one is admitting that right now, are you? All you guys are just doomed because of that. The reality is we've all been there. So the funny thing is in a relationship, we can do that with other people. My wife doesn't know my heart. A lot of times I don't even know my own heart. But the reality is, is that if she knew my heart, imagine if I came home and I'm like, look, sweetie, I bought you some flowers. And she knew my heart. and She was just like, your heart stinks. It's horrible. You didn't give these to me because you love me because you want something else after dinner when the kids go to bed. That's why you did this to me. And the reality is there's an ulterior motivation. It's not done out of love and genuine care and faithfulness and fidelity because I love her. But there's ulterior selfish motives that are actually less desirous. You get the idea? God says, look, I know not only your actions, but I also know the heart by which you do these things in. So God says, if, if you do things that are breaking in violation of these laws, You'll be cursed if you don't do things with a cheerfulness and a joyfulness because I'm always cheerful. I'm joyful. I'm the joyful God. And that's the type of personality I want to reflect because I generously, lovingly, lavishly pour out blessing upon blessing upon you. But here's the problem. That's what Paul is basically trying to drive at. The reality is, is that, which is really the second thing, is that we're all cursed. None are justified. Here's what he says. Now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law. No one. No one is justified God before the law. Because all of us have broken it. All of us have not, even though we would mentally assent to it and say, that's really good. Guys shouldn't whack people down in a dark alleyway. Uh, people shouldn't take advantage of other people. Children should honor their mom and dad. These are all really good rules. People shouldn't make false gods because in reality, that's kind of an offense to create this crazy, stupid-looking idol that doesn't have hands or arms and has a weird-looking, you know, big nose and say, that's God. I can understand that. This is, that's not giving great, proper honor to God. So I can understand all these things. But the problem is that we don't do everything with the right attitude, right heart. That's where we fail. We don't do everything with the right perspective, right motivation. We do things oftentimes from a motivation that's very self-centered, selfish. In reality, we want to be God. And we're subtly playing the trick, playing the game, somehow manipulating God so that we can get God, so we can leverage God to do things for us. I mean, even sometimes this is the reason why, you know, Christians come to church. They're like, I come to church because I love Jesus. Not really. You come to church because you claim to love Jesus, but really what you want is you want God to give you something. You think God's your sugar daddy. You think if you just come to church, you're going to grease him up and he'll give you a wife. It doesn't work that way. All right, he's, he's, he's not somehow to be leveraged by us so that we can get what we want, all right? But we live like that so oftentimes. We treat God like this pinata that if we just whack him hard enough through this thing called prayer, God will just burst open and give us everything we desire, and the reality is that that's not the way that God wants us to think about himself. In fact, that's very dishonoring to God. So the reality at the end of the day, if we look at the fact of saying, I will be made right with God by living in accordance to the rules and regulations and the laws and standards which God lays out, you understand you will be doomed? You understand that? You cannot keep these things. You don't live according to them. None of us do. That's why Paul summarizes in Romans chapter 3, all have sinned, and all have fallen short of the glory of God. In other words, all of us lay underneath a curse. 
So again, trying to look at this biblically, not according to some sort of 21st century B-style movie, the curse is not some sort of weird thing that someone, I'm going to curse you. The curse is not being in right relationship with God. That's the curse. Because at the end of the day, God created us for himself to be in right relationship with him. And in being right relationship with him, we have life. We live. We enjoy God. We enjoy each other. We enjoy fellowship with other people that maybe we had broken relationships with before. Now because of the cross, now because of the right relationship with God, we start having a better relationship, more healed relationship with ourselves, with our environment, with other people. And that's part of the act of redemption that God brings about. So here's the reality. All of us, if we find ourselves trying to be made right with God on the basis of doing, we will be destroyed. That's why he goes on to say again in verse 11, Now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law. The righteous shall live by faith, but the law is not of faith, neither is the one who, sh- who does them, uh, for the one who does them shall live by them. So here's Paul's point. Is that look, if you, if you seek to be made right with God by the basis of these little rules, regulations that you set up, and you'll be doomed. Here's the problem. This, is, this kind of bring, raises sort of an elementary question here. Because some people look at the law, they're like, oh, I know I can't do it. I'm just failure. I don't know what to do. I'm just, I guess I'm just damned. Others are like, you know what? I'll try to live according to that. I'll try to make it happen. Here's the problem. That's called the legalist or the religious person. All right? You're like, it seems like he picks on the religious people a lot. Yes, Jesus did too. The point that I would make is this, is that the religious person or the self-righteous person usually picks out five or six, maybe 10, 15 types of rules in which they say, I will live by these. A lot of them that have nothing to do with the Bible. For example, they're like, I'm righteous with God because I don't smoke cigarettes. I'm righteous with God because I don't drink alcohol. I'm righteous with God because I don't go to bad movies or whatever. I mean, all these like silly things and people are like, I'm righteous with God because I've made these rules and regulations the basis or standard by which I will be made right with God. Problem is, is none of those things are on God's list. You've got a very truncated list and by the fact of the matter that if you're going to live according to these things, you better make sure that your list lines up with God or you're even more damned. I mean, you're in a, you're in a pretty bad predicament. The point that Paul's trying to summarize with is every one of us failed. We can't keep up to the right standards of God. Even if you somehow by action think you can do it, by motivation, by attitude, we've all failed. We've not done, none of us can say we have always served God joyfully, happily, faithfully, even to the point of death. No one can say that. You're like, well, doesn't God grade on a curve? Don't you wish he did? Because if he did, most of us would be like, I think God is going to compare me to Jeffrey Dahmer, and I'm way better than him. He's damned. I'm definitely going to hell, going to heaven. He's going to hell. I'm going to heaven. Fortunately, that's not how God works. I mean, there's one guy that God looks at and says, perfection. It's his son. It's the only guy. He looks at Jesus and says, he's perfect. The rest of you are damned. The rest of you are in sin. That's the reality. That's what Paul is trying to say. I'm, just, I'm, I'm not trying to make stuff up. I'm just trying to say this is exactly what Paul is trying to convey, that we, all of us, find ourselves in a very, very bad situation before God in which we find ourselves destroyed. So the real question is, is then what's God going to do? 
how does God deal with this? How does God bring resolve to this great crisis? This is the absolute mystery of all of this. It's the very God who established the terms of this covenant, the very God who knew that those that he was covenanting himself with were going to break these terms, that God himself was also going to be the judge over these terms that are now broken, does something absolutely phenomenal. He brings about the solution by saying, not only will I be the judge, but I will also be the judged. I will send my son, and he will take the blame, the credit, the sin upon himself, and he will be judged in your behalf. This is it. This is where it gets absolutely amazing. So the next thing we're going to take a look at is really asking the question and trying to understand what it means of what does it mean in terms of Jesus lifting the curse. Verse 13 says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs upon a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So really the question that we want to ask now is what does it mean to be cursed? What does it mean for Jesus to be cursed? The only other verse that even comes close to this, uh, again, is another writing of Paul. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 5.21. Paul says something very similar to this. Here's what he says. He says, for our sake, he, Jesus, or, or he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that we might, you and I, become the righteousness of God. See, only the thing that comes close to it. So on the one hand, Paul is saying Christ became a curse. On the other hand, he's saying that Christ became sin for us. So really the question that we want to understand is how does this happen? Because in sort of the context of this Galatian passage, here's what Paul is trying to say. Try to bring a little bit of a summary to this. You and I, we are not made right with God on the basis of what we do. If we try to be made right on the basis of what we do, we all fail. We all fail. We all find ourselves leverage, uh, living underneath a curse. The curse is leveled against us, leveraged against us. And so therefore, we are not in right relationship with God. We don't have right relationship with God. We don't have right relationship with other people. We're under this curse that is not right, loving, faithful, exceptional, joyful relationship with God. Does that make sense? So the question is, how does God bring us, who are lawbreakers, that are outside of this relationship with God, that are under this curse into this right relationship with God that's no longer under the curse. Here's what Paul says. Paul says what God did, his solution, was that Jesus himself leveraged your curse, our, our curse that's upon us, upon himself, himself becoming a curse. So here's at least three things of what this means. The first is that it basically means that Jesus was first and foremost punished. We know that. Jesus was punished. Here's why we mean that. Because when we talk about, again, the word curse, Paul even references an Old Testament passage. He says, for cursed is every man who hangs upon a tree. What you need to understand is that when somebody died, say, for example, in the Old Testament, um, you had honorable deaths and you had dishonorable deaths. By the way, same way that we would do it today. You guys remember the soldiers that were killed in the streets, I don't know, Fallujah, remember that? And their bodies were dragged from the Hummer, and their head was decapitated, and their body was dragged around and burned, and they put, a, put them on a big old pike and hang, hung them from some sort of a sign. 
was absolutely horrible. I still remember those images in my mind of watching this whole thing take place, or you know, watching the aftermath of those whole things. So this is horrible. What a very dishonorable way to die. That was the intention of these guys. They had great hatred towards the Americans. Americans committed great crimes in their minds, and so they decided to basically carry out their own form of street justice. In the Old Testament, you had honorable deaths. When somebody dies, they gather around, they celebrate them, they sing songs to enter, as they enter into the next life. They bury their body in a tomb, some sort of way. It's all honorable. But then there's dishonorable deaths. So if you were somebody that lived in the culture, let's say you, you, know, you, you, know, you raped the king's daughter, something very horrendous that you should never do, but you did it, and now you're guilty, what would happen is you brought great um, frustration and problem and a great curse upon that nation. You are no longer viewed as a protected citizen. Get the idea? You're, you're, no one's going to stand up for you and protect you. They're not going to stand up for you and say, you know what? The guy deserves some help. Because you're, you're horrible. What you did was absolutely horrendous. You deserve to die the worst form of death not an honorable form of death, so let's have you die in a very dishonorable way. So what they would do, they would either hang a person on, a, on, a, on some sort of a tree, like actually hang them, put something around their neck, a noose, hang them on a tree, or they would run a pike through your body and to, to where you would actually still be alive, not the type, type of crucifixion we would think about. And sometimes they would do this, leave your body in, in the middle of an area where all sorts of animals would come out in the middle of the night and start eating your body while you're still alive. This is all forms of basically saying, you're worthy of nothing. You're worthy of dying a horrible, just absolutely disgusting form of dishonorable death. That's what you deserve. And when Paul looks at the fact that Jesus died on a tree, in his mind he's thinking Hebraic terms. He's thinking anyone that's hung on a tree is cursed, meaning he is dishonorable. He has no honor to be given to him, he is to die the worst form of death, dishonorable death. Paul says Jesus became a curse, meaning Jesus' death was a punishment. The second thing it also means is that Jesus suffered loss. Here's the reality. When we talk about curse, again, in covenantal language, what we're actually saying is that to be in curse, to be in a curse or to be under a curse is to be outside of relationship with God. You get that? To be in blessing, you're in relationship with God. To be in a curse, meaning to violate the terms of the agreement, you're now cursed. You're now under a curse. So when Jesus died on the cross and Paul says he was cursed, he became a curse for us. What Paul is basically saying and admitting we also know this based upon verses in the New Testament text of the, uh, of the gospel accounts. Something happened on the cross in terms that can only be summarized as a loss of fellowship, love, relationship between Jesus and the Father. Let me give you an example. Do you know that throughout Jesus' entire ministry in life always refers to God exclusively as his father, always. Never deviates from that. It's always God is my father. The father loves me. The father leads me. All that the father gives me to do, I, I do. Jesus talks about the father as when you pray, pray to him as our father. Every time refers to God as the father. The only time Jesus refers to God as God and not as father is on the cross. When he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
The reality is, is this. The depth of suffering at the loss of a relationship is completely proportionate to the depth of relationship. Let me give you an example. If you saw somebody in church and you're just acquaintance with them, they're like, they walk up to you afterwards, they're like, I hate you, I don't want to see your face again. You'll be like, whatever, that guy's lost it. You know, I don't, I don't even know who that guy is. What a psycho. But if that person that came up to you was your relative, like your brother or your sister, you'd be like, gosh, that, that bums me out, man. If that person was your spouse, it's really painful. If that person is your child, very painful. People tell us that people rarely get over this type of sense of rejection. Say at a young age, your father, somebody walks out of your life and says, I don't want to have anything to do with you ever again. Some of you have gone through circumstances like that. The depth of pain that is associated with that is because of the depth of relationship that you have with that person. What you need to understand is that the depth of relationship that Jesus had with the Father was infinitely greater than what any of us can ever imagine. Throughout all eternity past, Jesus was one with the Father in relationship, in love, in fellowship. That's why Jesus can actually say, everything the Father tells me to do, I do, I do joyfully. Everything the Father called me to live out and follow, I've done just satisfied with my Father. The Father even confirms the relationship between Jesus and him. When Jesus was baptized, later on when Jesus went on the mount of what we call the Mount of Transfiguration, a couple occasions, God actually breaks the heaven, breaks the silence and says, listen, this is my boy, this is my son. I love him more than anything. He's my son. But on the cross, Jesus cried, my God, my God, and for the first time ever, silence no response we think sometimes we live in a culture that's godless you know it's not godless God's everywhere everywhere we look everything we do is always because God's there the fact that there's justice or even forms or shreds of justice is because God the reason why you can even feel love Maybe even abused love, meaning you've abused love, is somehow because there's a shred of love that's there to even abuse. It's because God's there. The reason why there's even any semblance of shalom or peace is because God's there. God is there. Even though we may look at various actions or attitudes or cultures or societies and be like, God's not there. God is always there. The reality is, is that what Jesus suffered on the cross was a loss of relational fellowship with God for the first time ever. Called to the Father and there was silence. That's hell. Jean-Paul Sartre said that hell is when people stare at us all the time. In our present condition, it's absolutely true. In our sinful condition, when people stare at you, it's very humiliating when someone just stares at you, if I were to stare at you and I take my eyes off you, you'd be like, that's freaky. That guy is a pervert or weird or something's not right there. It's very just destructive. And you look at it as that such, in that way. But the reality is, is true hell is loss of 
fellowship with the Father. That's the curse. Jesus endured that on the cross. Jesus endured that on the cross. Jesus literally took upon himself what we should have, took it upon himself for himself as a result of this. Martin Luther said this. It's the concept of what he describes as the great exchange. He says, this is the mystery which is rich in divine grace to sinners, wherein by a wonderful exchange our sins are no longer ours but Christ's. And the righteousness of Christ, not Christ's, but ours. He has emptied himself of his righteousness that he might clothe us with it and fill us with it. And he has taken our evils upon himself that he might deliver us from them. The reality is, is that Jesus on the cross became a curse. Became a curse, was cursed for us. The loss of fellowship with the Father the loss of right relationship with the Father that we had, that we have. Jesus bore upon himself and the consequences that follow that. The last thing I want to really try to understand is not only do we see these things in terms of Jesus being punished, Jesus suffering loss, but also through the fact that Jesus became a curse. Now when we say Jesus became a curse, what do we mean? Do we mean that Jesus actually was cursed? Do we, when we say that Jesus became sin? Uh, do we actually mean that Jesus became sinful? I mean, on the cross, did Jesus become an adulterer? On the cross, did Jesus become, you know, a thief? On the cross, did Jesus become a murderer? What do we mean by this? So it can't mean that. It doesn't mean that. That's not what Paul means. But here's the idea of what it basically means. Is that in the same way that while Jesus was on the cross, and he was receiving for himself, dying for others, substitution, meaning he died for somebody else. Isaiah 53 tells us that he was bruised and afflicted, not for himself, but for somebody else. That Jesus died for us on the cross. He took this curse upon himself. But the point that I think that Paul is trying to bring home here is that he became a curse. And here's what it basically means is this. The idea is that on the cross, the perfect, sinless, righteous Good, loving, caring, compassionate, merciful Jesus was treated as the most heinous sinner. This is important. This is exactly what Paul's saying. God legally looked at Jesus, saw him literally being the sinner that Adam was saw Jesus as being the murderer that Moses was, saw Jesus carrying the sin of adultery that David committed, carrying the sin of, you know, turning away from God, denial that Peter committed, carrying the sin of betrayal that Judas committed, all upon himself. Jesus bore these things for others, for you, became a curse for you. So that ultimately the point of the matter is this. It brings it back to this whole bigger concept. So in the same way that God sees Jesus on the cross and considers or reckons Jesus as the greatest, most horrible sinner to the point where Jesus is separated from God. God looks at you and I as righteous. The same way he sees the sun righteous. He reckons Christ 
as sin, he reckons us as righteous. Let me finish this thought. God does not just simply look at us and say your sins are forgiven. It's not. It's not what he says. It goes beyond that. Because if all that God did is just say, hey, your sins are forgiven. I mean, that's wonderful. But the reality is, you know, in some ways, that's kind of a burden to bear too. Because even though you walk out of here, you're like, oh, I feel so good. My sins are forgiven. You're driving home. Someone cuts you off and you cuss. Or you throw a rock at the car and you just want to go to blows with them head to head, toe to toe. You already found anger already rising in your heart. The best that actually happened to you at that day was you got your balance zeroed out. That's all. Zeroed out. You took your negative balance and brought it up to a zero. But now that you sin, you're back down here again. So you got to keep coming back. But what Jesus did on the cross is not just die to forgive you. What Jesus did on the cross was that God the Father reckoned Jesus as a curse, reckoned Jesus as sin, and therefore as a result of that, that's why God can reckon you as righteous. This is huge. God doesn't look at you and say, you are righteous. He looks at you and says, I reckon you righteous. I consider you righteous. The difference is this. Even though we are in the process of becoming more like Christ, we would call that an act of sanctification. The reality is that none of us are righteous. If you look at your life and you think, well, I thought Christians are righteous, you will find yourself in a lot of confusion because you will walk out of here, you will sin, and you will think, well, wait a minute, I thought Christians were righteous. How could I be sinning right now? Because if I'm sinning, then either A, I'm not a Christian, or if I am a Christian, I'm a really bad Christian, so I gotta try harder. And your theology will absolutely drive you to going crazy. But if you look at yourself and say, actually, I'm both a sinner but I'm reckoned righteous. I'm considered righteous in the same way that Jesus did not become sinful in the same way you have not become righteous. God considered Jesus sinner and God considers you righteous. Luther calls this the great exchange. This is what God has done for us in Christ. And this is why Paul says, listen, you cannot be made righteous in God in the law, because the law condemns you. What you need is you need somebody to come in to leverage the weight of the law off of you to redeem you. And that's what Jesus does. Let me summarize it by saying this. If I were to sit down with all of us and be like, look, I want to have a relationship with all you guys, but here's some standards which I'm going to throw down for you guys that I think are important for us to be able to have a good relationship. Here's the terms of our relationship. One, you got to be faster than a speeding bullet. Two, you got to be able to leap Tall buildings in a single bound. Three, I need to make sure that you are more powerful than a locomotive. You're like, some of you guys are like super arrogant. You're like, I'll do it. I will do it. Trust me, I'll do it. You'll find a way, all right? And you'll spend the whole life trying to find a way to leap tall buildings in a single bound, to be faster than a speeding bullet, to be more powerful than a locomotive. Some of you will be like, we can't do that. What, what we need is Superman. Bingo. That's a stupid illustration, but you get the idea. <laughs> God says, look, these are good terms, because these are not good terms, all right? Nobody, all right? God says these are good terms by which to define a relationship. You agree to it. You amen them. You acknowledge that, but you've not kept to them. And therefore, you sit under a curse. It's equivalent to a wife committing adultery on her husband or a husband having a chronic porn issue 
That's the type of relationship you'll have. It's broken. It's dysfunctional. It's never whole. It's a curse. And it's a curse. So you can either A, look at your life and say, I will just try harder. I will do better. I will try to live according to the terms of the law, to the terms of the agreement. Be careful, because what you're basically saying is you're saying you need to abide by the terms of every law and have the proper attitude along with it as well. The most liberating thing is to say, I can't do that. But I know one who did. Let me give you a final example of this, and I'll read you a quote. This is a verse I, I came across. Um, I remember reading it a long time ago. It, it actually like, it so stirred my heart. I'm like, I'm going to live according to this. And it's the verse that says, Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. I remember just thinking, oh, I, I, I want that, man. I, I'm, I'm going to fight. I'm going to work to get clean hands and a pure heart, to read my Bible, to go to church, to pray. I want clean hands and a pure heart. I want to ascend to the hill of God. I want to be there with God. I love God. I want to hang with God. I want to be in relationship with God. So in order for me to get there, i got to have clean hands and a pure heart. And there are times where I fought hard to get that. And the reality is it's like while I'm climbing this hill, the hill of the Lord, it's like all slippery and I keep falling down. I get muddy and broken. And finally, the reality is, is this, is that if you look at verses like that as centered on you, you will either A, become very arrogant because you will actually think you can do it, or B, you will feel absolutely, completely at the end of yourself and destroyed because you can't. But there's a third way. And the third way is to look at Jesus and say, he's got clean hands. He's got a pure heart. Jesus has ascended to the hill of the Lord. It's in him I'm complete. I will run to him. I will look to him. I will hold to him. I will seek him, love him, do everything I can to be with Jesus because Jesus is the one that's right with God. This changes everything the way we live. Everything. Because a lot of us, we spend so much energy trying to be made right with God. It is so very exhausting to try to suppress, to manage, to cover your sinfulness. You can't. But what you can do is you can let Jesus manage, control, and condemn sinfulness in his sinful flesh like he did on the cross and let God consider Christ a curse and let God consider you righteous. When that happens, you're free. You're free. Rather than spending all your energy trying to be made right with God and reconciling yourself to God, you can actually use that energy now to go seek to make reconciliation among other people. Other people that are broken, other people that are hurting, other people that are down and out, other people that are not in right relationship with God. Rather than trying to find and use energy that you don't have to create something that you cannot make or define or make to be made right with God, you can now use your energy to go forth and be used by God as an agent of reconciliation, of help, of strength, of blessing. That's the gospel. That's what the gospel does. I'm going to have Chris come on up. We're going to finish, wrap this up with worship. But I want you guys to listen to a quote taken 
out of a book called The Cross. It's written by a guy named John Stott. It's an amazing verse, and he just sort of encapsulates all of this really well. I'm going to finish with this. We're going to worship. We're going to sing to the Lord. We're going to partake of communion together. If you're here, you're not a Christian, I encourage you to call upon Jesus. Jesus says to repent. John the Baptist says to repent. Peter, when he was preaching on the day of Pentecost, said to repent. Repentance is not just simply stop smoking weed. It's not just somehow shape up your act and start acting nice, tipping your hat off to old ladies. It's not what it is. Repentance is basically change the way that you think about God. If you think God, is this your sugar daddy? Think differently, he's not. He's the ultimate, infinite, powerful, almighty God. If you think that God is just gonna sweep sin under the rug, look at the cross. He doesn't sweep sin under the rug. He stacks it on his son. If you think God doesn't care about the hurting, look to the cross and see the vastness of the love of God poured out upon his son to make you right. Change the way that you think about God. Listen to the quote. The cross tells us some unpalatable truths about ourselves, namely that we are sinners under the righteous curse of God's law and we cannot save ourselves. Christ bore our sin and curse precisely because he could gain release, we could gain release from them in no other way. If we could have been forgiven by our own good works, by being circumcised, keeping the law, we may be quite sure that there would have been no need for a cross. Every time we look at the cross, Christ seems to say to us, I'm here because of you. It's your sin that I'm bearing. It's your curse that I'm suffering. It's your debt that I'm paying. It's your death that I'm dying. God, we thank you that at the end of the day, all of this is about you. You're the giver of this good gift. By being the giver of this good gift, Lord, it leads us to a place where all we can do is be thankful and give praise back to you. We have nothing of which to boast. This is not about us somehow forming a religion. That's the good guys and the bad guys, the righteous and the unrighteous. This is about the fact that all of us are damned and unrighteous. All of us are under the curse. There's not a good team and a bad team. There's not good guys and a bad guy. There's a good guy and the rest are bad. And this is why, Lord, we, we come to your son Jesus humbly. We just say thank you for the cross. We say thank you to your son Jesus that was willing to endure the loss of fellowship with the Father, to allow himself to be lost from the Father for some period of time a hell that's even infinitely greater than what we can ever even imagine or think for us so that we who are lost can be made right with God. Jesus disadvantaged himself for us so that we could be advantaged and blessed. We worship you now, God. Give praise to you right now. As we take the communion, we think of the cross. We remember the price that was paid to redeem us. Salvation's free, but it costs you everything.